Hello and welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski, and I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. We have uh, an unbelievable episode for you today, really excited about it. On January 14th, we hosted a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill uh, for roughly 100 Hill staffers and advocates. And the goal of the briefing was to educate a wide range of Hill staffers about the importance of two big pieces of bipartisan housing legislation uh, that were introduced in the Senate last month, and to encourage elected officials to support those bills in both the House and the Senate. So the two bills that we're talking about, first is the Eviction Crisis Act, which was introduced by Senators Bennett, a Democrat from Colorado, Portman, a Republican from Ohio, Brown, a Democrat from Ohio, and Young, a Republican from Indiana. You may remember Senator Young from a prior episode that we did in 2018. Uh, And the second bill is the Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act, which was introduced by Senator Young and Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland. The, uh, The introduction of these bills... Uh, is are significant milestones for the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign in advancing our policy agenda. Uh, these policy solutions contained in these bills have been priorities of the campaign from our inception, um, and we've been working hard on the Hill with all of our multi-sector partners to get these policy ideas introduced into legislation. The fact that both of these bills are bipartisan, especially in the current political climate, speaks volumes about the growing recognition that housing is inextricably linked to every measure of having a quality life. Uh, So going forward in 2020, uh, we look forward to raising awareness and building support to get these bills enacted uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully. Um, And as you'll hear throughout this episode, there's a real chance that we can get this across the finish line. Uh, You'll learn all about each bill uh, through the course of the episode, but first, let me walk you through uh, what's about to happen. Uh, There are a lot of moving parts to this episode. Again, this is is a live recording of the briefing we conducted, and it's a a star-studded cast of speakers. Um, So Diane Yantel, uh, the CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, opens up the event by framing the housing affordability crisis and explaining uh, the importance of the bills. Then we'll hear from Sarah Oppenheimer, who's an Associate Director of Policy and Research at Opportunity Insights. You'll recall that we talked to Opportunity Insights in a previous podcast episode. Uh, Their research deeply shaped the Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act. Uh, Then we'll hear from Dr. Matthew Desmond, who's an acclaimed sociologist at Princeton, a MacArthur Genius recipient, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the book Evicted. Uh, And he's going to talk about the Eviction Crisis Act. Then we're going to hear from United States Senators Sherrod Brown and Chris Van Hollen about the bills. After that, uh, I'm going to I moderate a panel discussion with uh, Matt Desmond, Sarah Oppenheimer, uh, Nan Roman, who is the CEO of the National Alliance on Homelessness, and Peggy Bailey, who is the VP for Housing Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And then at the start of the panel, uh, Matt Desmond calls an audible and invites Jeffrey Williams up to join the panel as well. And Jeffrey is a tenant advocate in Richmond, Virginia, uh, who was actually in D.C. that day to testify before Congress. And he has uh, lived experience with an eviction proceeding. 
Then we take questions from the audience for a little bit, and about halfway through the Q&A, Senator Michael Bennett arrives and provides some remarks, and then we finish up with Q&A. Uh, so like I said, uh, a wonderful mix of elected officials, experts, advocates, people with lived experience. Uh, this episode has it all. I hope you enjoy. I hope you're encouraged by what you're about to hear, uh, because bold and bipartisan housing solutions are within reach. So here's the episode. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks so much for being here. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm Diane Yantel. I'm president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. We're a membership organization, and our work is all about advancing federal policy solutions so that the lowest-income people have decent, accessible, and affordable homes. So we're so glad to have you all here today. It's heartening to have such a good turnout for such an important topic. Uh, we're here today to talk about bold, bipartisan solutions to the housing crisis. And we are in the midst of a severe housing crisis as a country. So nationally, we have a shortage of 7 million homes that are affordable and available to the lowest income people. So another way of saying that same number is for every 100 of the lowest income renters, you know, seniors, people with disabilities, families with children, and others, for every 100 of them, there are just 37 homes that are affordable and available to them. The shortage is pervasive, and it's impacting rural, suburban, and urban communities alike. And it ranges from areas where the shortage is most severe to least severe, but there is no state that has a sufficient number of homes affordable and available to its lowest income renters. So as a result of this shortage, there are nearly 8 million of the lowest income renters who are paying at least half of their income towards rent each month. And there's another about 550,000 people who have no homes at all. So you can imagine that when you, are, when you have such limited incomes to begin with and you're paying 50, 60, 70% of it to keep a roof over your head each month, you have very little left for all of life's other necessities and your one financial emergency, you know, one broken down car, one missed day of work, one sick child away from not being able to pay the rent and facing eviction and possibly homelessness. So this is why we have homelessness in our country. It's why we have housing poverty. It's why, despite the best efforts of communities across the country, homelessness in some of these communities is rising again. And we have homelessness and we have housing poverty in our country because we have a system where only one in every four households who are eligible for and in need of housing assistance receives any. So 75% of the lowest income renters, they're eligible for housing assistance, they need housing assistance, they get none. They're the folks who are waiting in line, adding their names to years, sometimes decades-long waiting lists, hoping to win what's essentially a housing lottery in our country, where just the lucky 25% gets the help that they need. 
So this briefing today is um, being hosted by the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. So this campaign is a coalition of 100 leading national organizations. It's led by this steering committee of 18 national organizations. For, and you'll see that they are from a wide range of fields, from the education field, the healthcare sector, mental health, anti-hunger, anti-poverty, local government, social work, civil rights. And this campaign is calling for a major federal investment in solutions in an increase in production dollars through the National Housing Trust Fund, an increase in rental assistance through an expansion of Section 8 vouchers, and an emergency cash assistance program for housing stability and homeless prevention. And we are not alone in our call to action. So we commissioned a public poll uh, last spring, and the results of it were really clear. 85% of the public believes that a safe, decent, affordable place to live should be a top national priority. And 8 in 10 people in America, and this is across party lines, this is from conservatives to progressives, 8 in 10 people in America say that the president and Congress should take major action to make homes affordable for the lowest income people. So the good news, that's a lot of bad news, and the good news is that members of Congress and policy makers at all levels are increasingly responding to this, this urgency and to the need. And they're increasingly uh, introducing big, ambitious solutions at a scale that matches the crisis itself and matches the need. It's important to, to recognize, I think, too, before we even get into talking about the solutions themselves, that inaction is expensive, right? We're paying to maintain homelessness and housing poverty in our country, and we pay for it through lowered educational attainment for kids. We pay for it through poor health and increased health costs through lowered tax revenue. We pay for it in a, in a multitude of, way, of ways. So instead, we are urging that we invest at the scale necessary in solutions. So there are a number of solutions that are out there, and we're here to talk about a few of them today. One bill that's not here is, uh, was introduced last fall by Senator Hirono, and that's the Pathway to Stable and Affordable Housing for All Act. This, that's a bill that incorporates the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign's really full-scaled, long-term agenda. It would fund investments in the National Housing Trust Fund at $40 billion a year, and it would make rental assistance vouchers available to all who need them and are eligible for them. Today we're here to talk about two other ambitious, necessary, and bipartisan bills to alleviate the housing crisis. The first is the Bipartisan Eviction Crisis Act. This was introduced by Senators Portman, Bennett, Brown, and Young, and it includes an emergency rental assistance pilot program that provides direct financial assistance and stability services to help the lowest income households avoid evictions and avoid that spir spiraling down into poverty that results. 
And the Bipartisan Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act, which was introduced by Senators Young and Van Hollen, would create 500,000 new housing vouchers. And they're specifically designed for low-income families with children so that they can have increased access to neighborhoods with better schools, better access to jobs, and transportation. So these bills are really important, bold proposals that should be widely supported. And we're here today to tell you why we believe these bills are so important, to help you make the case so that you can go back to your bosses and urge them to co-sponsor these bills. So we have a terrific lineup of speakers today. I'm going to introduce Sarah Oppenheimer. So Sarah is the Associate Director of Policy and Research at Opportunity Insights, and her work focuses on bridging research with policy and practice to address poverty and support families' outcomes. Opportunity Insights is a new research institute that's based at Harvard and was founding by, founded by leading economists, including Raj Chetty. Its mission is to develop scalable policy solutions that empower families to rise out of poverty and achieve better life outcomes. And Sarah's and her team's research deeply informed the creation of the Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act. So, Sarah, please come on up. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diane, and thank you for all being here today. This is such an exciting crowd to have in the room to talk about these topics. Um, I want to start by just saying how thrilled we are to be talking about the, um, about the Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act today. Um, fundamentally, I don't want to bury the lead here, we think that this is um, a bill that has tremendous uh, potential for influencing kids' outcomes and for addressing some of the long-term trends that Opportunity Insights and others have been looking at for some time in terms of, of looking at trends in um, downward intergenerational mobility in this country that is leading to some of those outcomes that Diane mentioned around uh, concentrated poverty and homelessness. We're also incredibly excited because this act really reflects an alignment between research and policy that doesn't often happen. And I think that it is a rarity when it happens, and it is especially exciting when it happens, because I think it shows the true potential of what of bringing forward what we know um, works and putting that into scalable solutions. So I'm going to spend the next few minutes um, talking about sort of what motivated both this bill as well as our research and the confluence between the two. Um, talking about some of the research that we have been bringing forward over the last six months that really speaks to um, the impact of mobility counseling services and vouchers on kids' long-term outcomes, and then talking about some of the high points of this bill itself and what we're particularly excited about. So fundamentally, um, I always sort of like to situate our research and some of the policy implications um, of our research um, in the fact that our work is motivated by the fact that over the last several decades, we have seen consistent downward trends in economic mobility um, across the country. So how well um, are kids doing relative to what their parents earned? If you were born in the 1940s, you had a very good shot of going on and making more than your parents achieving that American dream. 
Fast forward to 1980, and if you were born in that decade, you had a 50-50 shot um, of achieving the American dream. Um, this is more pronounced for low-income individuals and is something that we really need to start identifying policy solutions to reverse the trend on. We also know that these opportunity, um, that this opportunity, not only are we seeing overall average downturns, but that this varies enormously by place. So um, this is a map of what um, adults who grew up in low-income families, what they went on to earn as adults. And so you can see that in the red areas, children who grew up in those areas in low-income families went on to earn low incomes as adults, whereas in some of the blue areas, you see that children went on to earn much higher incomes than they grew up with. Now, these place effects um, are not just applicable at the city or the county level, but they go down to very granular geographies. And basically, the roots of opportunity um, lie at a very local neighborhood level. This is important to keep in mind when we think about the geographic choices that families have and the barriers that they experience um, when they choose to move. We also need to understand that this unequal distribution of opportunities for children connects to research that has shown the enormous impact of place on children's long-term outcomes. Um, so while we've thought for some time that neighborhoods did have a bearing on kids' long-term outcomes, some of the research that our team and others have recently been able to elevate has shown that there is a very significant and causal impact um, around where you live and what that means for your long-term outcomes. So some of the work that our team did looked at the long-term earnings and other outcomes of kids who had been part of HUD's um, Moving to Opportunity demonstration, which was a demonstration in the 1990s. And um, our findings showed that kids who moved to lower poverty, higher, uh, higher opportunity areas as adults went on to have higher earnings as adults, went on to have better educational outcomes, were less likely to be single parents, whereas kids who were very young when their families moved and those families moved to higher poverty, lower opportunity areas, went on to experience much greater negative outcomes and barriers as adults related to poverty, related to incarceration. These are some of those long-term impacts that Diane was mentioning that have very real social and financial costs. So then, despite the potential impacts of growing up in high-opportunity neighborhoods, we also see that families who receive the housing choice voucher, and this is just that 25% that, uh, that Diane spoke of. So these are the families who have gotten that golden ticket and have the ability to take their housing choice voucher and potentially to use it in any community um, throughout the country. We see that those families remain concentrated in areas of lower opportunity. Um, and this is a map that sort of um, zooms in on opportunity areas in Seattle and King County. And the green dots represent the areas where voucher holders in Seattle and King County are most likely to live set against the backdrop of these opportunity area classifications. You can see that voucher holders are more likely to be concentrated in these lower opportunity communities. And, um, and that has important implications for what the benefit of the voucher is and what this means for kids' long-term outcomes. We know that rent alone is not a driver of these differences. And we also know from our recent research that this is not a reflection of families' preferences. This is a reflection of the barriers that families experience when they are trying to access, um, when they are trying to access housing and opportunity areas. Barriers like lack of information, search frictions, lack of landlord engagement. 
So this is all a little bit depressing, but there's also good news because some of our research is putting forward um, that we know what policy solutions are effective in increasing families' geographic choices, moving where those dots are concentrated so that families can access any of these communities um, and including areas of higher opportunity. These are solutions that are also reinforced by, um, by the resources and the policy changes that are presented in this act. So a little more on what this research that we've been working on um, has shown and how it is connected to, um, to this bill. So back in 2015-16, housing authorities across the country were noting there is this concentration of voucher holders in higher poverty, lower opportunity communities. Um, and we also know that um, place matters quite a bit. And so it begged the question, well, what strategies would be most effective in helping families to overcome barriers and access greater geographic choice? Um, this work is a reflection that then came about in collaboration between um, a cross-agency interdisciplinary team led by Raj Chetty um, and others in collaboration with the Seattle Housing Authority, the King County Housing Authority, MDRC, and JPAL North America. The through line of the study is that we sought to test which strategies would work in basically shifting um, which neighborhoods families who had young children and were using housing choice vouchers chose to move to. The crux of this intervention was to land on a service strategy that would be effective in breaking down barriers for families and helping them to access opportunity areas. And so after review of compelling programs across the country, um, as well as um, lots of in-depth conversations with landlords, with families, with practitioners in Seattle and King County, we landed on a comprehensive service intervention that included multiple components that were all aimed at addressing um, these various barriers that families might, um, might experience in trying to access higher opportunity areas. One was customized search assistance, so making sure that families were aware of where high opportunity areas were and what made them high opportunity areas, and also providing customized assistance in the form of rental application coaching and housing search that families could use as they were going about and trying to move with their voucher. The second was on increasing landlord engagement. The voucher program only works if you have landlords who are willing to rent to families. Um, and so part of this was cultivating relationships with landlords to and educate them about the voucher program, and then also taking steps to streamline bureaucratic processes to make sure that those didn't in and of themselves represent barriers to landlords' engagement uh, in the program. And then finally, testing housing search assistance, um, or testing short-term financial assistance to level the playing field. This bill um, is an opportunity to reflect some of the services that we have studied um, and that we know work. Um, we tested these services and this suite of services with about 400 families in the Seattle King County uh, area. We randomized families to either receive services, um, which uh, incorporated all of these plus the voucher or to receive standard services which still included the voucher and didn't have these additional service components. Um, and importantly, this was the first test to really understand when vouchers were not mandated to be used in specific areas, where did families choose to live once these barriers, barriers were removed and they had um, resources that would effectively level the playing field. 
So the result of this work um, sort of blew us away. It was, these were much larger impacts than we had anticipated seeing. We had anticipated seeing, even knowing that we were putting a suite um, of services forward that we thought were very compelling and that would work well. So families that were assigned to that services group um, were four times as likely to move to high opportunity areas compared to families who received the voucher alone. Um, this... Uh, this is huge. Um, this has huge impacts on what kids' outcomes are going to look like. Families who moved to these higher opportunity areas didn't make concessions in terms of how far they were moving or the quality of unit or how long they had to search. All of those things ended up being equal between the treatment and control groups. It was really an outcome of when you fa give families these resources and these choices, they could actually realize true choice. And so that's reflected in these destinations of where families chose to live. The blue shaded areas represent opportunity areas throughout Seattle and King County. And you can see that the green uh, pins, which is where families who were assigned to receive these services, where they chose to live, we're seeing that families were moving all over the county. And that makes sense if we're actually trying to elevate policies and strategies that, um, that, influence, that uh, create choice then we will see that families move to a lot of different areas and we stop seeing these concentration voucher holders um, living in just certain communities. And the impacts on this, they're huge. We estimate that families who moved as a result of this will see lifetime income um, gains of over $200,000, that the gap in terms of low and high income kids' outcomes related to education and earnings is reduced through these moves by about a quarter. Um, and these have really big implications for sort of long-term intergenerational poverty. Kids who are moving as a result of this work are less likely to come back and to need a voucher in the future. And so coming back to the Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act, we are incredibly excited about the contours that stand out in this bill. One is that this really does reflect evidence-based strategies. As others have noted, it creates an additional 500,000 housing vouchers for low-income families with young children. These vouchers are sorely needed because of the housing crisis, and they're sorely needed in, in particular groups that are most vulnerable. This bill targets homeless families, families that are living in areas of concentrated poverty, and families who who are at risk of displacement from presently high opportunity areas. It also allocates resources for customized housing search assistance. It doesn't mandate that families participate in mobility services, but it certainly makes resources available should families want to tap into those services. And finally, it emphasizes data-driven approaches for how we even think about classifications of opportunity, really using the best available research and data to inform how we um, plot those areas. Um, I've already talked and others have talked about the significant potential this has for kids' long-term impacts and in terms of how, how um, likely they are to go to college and where they go to college, what their earnings are likely to be as adults, um, and a host of other sort of social outcomes. Um, it also um, is a strategy that supports real choice among families, which has implications for family sense of agency and how satisfied they are in their neighborhood. Those are critical elements um, to it. Those are critical elements in housing stability and instability. And finally, this bill is incredibly encouraging because it really does uh, propose scalable solutions. These are, st these are strategies that can be embedded within the existing housing choice voucher program infrastructure and the balance between allocating both res uh, resources for housing assistance and resources for service components um, cannot be understated. It's incredibly exciting. So in closing, um, 
I think it's important, you know, in all this data, it's always important to really highlight what this means for families. So on the left-hand side, this is a, a painting that one of the kiddos that moved through this program gave to Raj when he came out to visit her once. Um, uh, he was going out with Stephanie DeLuca to observe some qualitative interviews, and she gave this to him saying, thank you, like, I'm so excited about my new school. This has made a difference for my family. She was seven. Also, Nikki, who is a mom to three-year-old Theo and moved as a result of this program, um, I ended up running into her at Target um, when we were both uh, shopping for Halloween costumes for our kids. And she said, you know, I've always wanted Theo to have a great education. And because of this program, I really do feel good about his future. Um, he has opportunities that I never dreamed I could give him. So... With that, um, I will close by just saying we're incredibly excited about this bill. We're incredibly excited about the forthcoming mobility demonstration that this bill is connected to. And we hope to see this work, not only this bill, not only passed, but this work being seated in communities across the country. So um, would love to hear what that looks like in your communities. And if, if Opportunity Insights can be a resource in any of that, please do reach out to us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. And I'm sure you all have questions and would love to hear more from Sarah. You'll have the opportunity uh, in just a few moments. But first, we're going to hear from our other speaker today, which is uh, Dr. Matthew Desmond. He's a professor of sociology at Princeton University. And he is the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Evicted. Uh, he leads the Eviction Lab at Princeton University, which produces groundbreaking research about the causes and the consequences of the eviction crisis. You've already heard members of Congress talk about his book, Evicted. You, many of your bosses probably have that book on their desk. Very often I'm struck when I'm in, um, when I see members of Congress speaking in committee hearings or out in public, they take their copy and they wave it up and they urge their colleagues to read the book. It's been a, a profoundly influential book, um, and uh, Matthew's book and his, his larger work has really deeply informed the creation of the Eviction Crisis Act. So Matthew, please join us. Hi. Um, I just got out of testifying in front of Congress since 10 a.m., so be kind to me. So we're in the middle of a housing crisis. That's why we're all gathered in this room. This housing crisis has three ingredients. Incomes for many Americans have been stagnant. So if you're living in a home headed by someone with a high school education or less, those two bottom lines, you haven't seen a lot of action in your income over the last 20 years. But as this was happening, housing costs were soaring. They were soaring all over the country in expensive cities on the coast, but they were soaring in pretty inexpensive cities too, in the Midwest and the South. Between 2000 and now, median asking rent in the country has doubled. Okay, it's doubled. So you have the shrinking gap between what a lot of families are bringing in and what they have to pay for just basic shelter needs. And then, you know, the federal government just hasn't stepped up to fill in the gap, right? Only one in four families who qualify for housing assistance receive it, not because, you know, they don't meet a certain standard or because they can't, you know, uh, they don't work enough. It's we just don't have enough help to go around, right? I've got two young kids. If I applied for public housing today in Washington, D.C., I'd be a grandfather by the time my application came up for review. That's what our system looks like today, right? So we've moved from a place where eviction, losing your home, being forced out of your home physically, used to be rare and weird and draw a lot of crowds to a place where eviction is incredibly commonplace in America because most 
renting families below the poverty line are spending most of their income on housing costs. And about one in four of those families are spending over 70% of their income just on rent and utilities alone. This is data from the American Housing Survey. So I started studying eviction in 2008 in Milwaukee and spent a lot of time with families getting evicted, a lot of time with their landlords. And then there are these basic questions, though, that the book I wrote leaves unanswered, like how many people get evicted in America? How big is the problem nationwide? You know, what cities have the highest and lowest eviction rate? Which laws are working? We don't know any questions. Like, we have no data to answer these kind of questions. Imagine us not knowing how many Americans died in car wrecks every year or got diabetes every year. That's what it's like when it comes to our data about eviction in America. So for the last two years, I've been working with a team at Princeton University. We call ourselves the Eviction Lab. And we've tasked ourselves with building the first ever national database of eviction in America. We've gotten over 83 million eviction records from all over the country going back to 2000. We've cleaned these data and we've put them online in a website that I hope you have visited. And if not, please visit. It's called evictionlab.org. And it's literally been an effort of making an invisible problem visible, putting a problem on the map. So what did we learn? How big of a problem is eviction in America? So in 2016, this is our latest uh, data, 2016, we estimate that 3.7 million evictions were filed all across America, 3.7 million evictions. Now, not all of those eviction filings resulted in actual eviction. We, we estimate that about 1.4 million uh, homes received a judgment for eviction. The judge said, you got to get out of your home. So that affects about 3.5 million people. 3.5 million people got evicted in 2016. That's the state of Connecticut, our 29th most biggest city. That's how bitch 3.5 million people live. This is a problem of an incredible scope. This is a much bigger problem than affected homeowners at the height of the foreclosure crisis. It's like foreclosure crisis level displacement every year times two affecting renters. That's our eviction crisis. This also isn't just a crisis that is affecting Seattle and San Francisco and New York City, these really expensive cities that are in the news a lot. If you look at the highest evicting cities in America, they're places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Richmond, Virginia. These are places that don't have super high rents but are displacing families at incredibly high rates. This also isn't an urban problem exclusively. Suburban communities, small cities across the country also experience high levels of displacement. I mean, if you look at Centerville, Illinois, population 5,002, you learn that one in nine homes is evicted every year. That's the same amount as Richmond, Virginia, the second highest evicting city in the country. So when we take this news to our members and we say we need to address the eviction crisis, we're not saying you need to care about something that's affecting people in big cities. We're not saying you need to uh, address things that are happening on, in New York and San Francisco. We're saying you need to address a problem that's affecting families all across America. This purple here shade is just population and counties. The red dots get bigger as the eviction rate gets bigger. Ohio and Pennsylvania. A lot of people in this town care about Ohio, Pennsylvania. And you see that like evictions are concentrated in urban areas like Cleveland and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, but there's non-trivial eviction rates affecting suburban and rural communities throughout these two states as well. This matters because eviction causes loss. Families lose their homes, their neighborhoods, kids lose their schools. Families often lose all their stuff, their possessions, which are taken by movers or piled on the street to be scavenged by neighbors. You know it takes a good amount of time and money to build a home and eviction can just tear that all down. An eviction comes with a legal record, a mark. 
And that can prevent families from moving into good neighborhoods and into decent housing because many property owners see that mark and they see, treat that as disqualifying. That's why research shows that when families get evicted, they move into worse housing than they lived in before and they move into neighborhoods with higher rates of poverty and higher rates of crime. Public housing authorities also see eviction as a disqualifying mark, which means we are systematically denying housing help to the families that need it the most. We have a study that shows that eviction causes job loss. And if any of you in this room have been evicted, you know why that is. It's such a consuming, stressful event. It can cause you to make mistakes at work, lose your footing in the labor market. And then there's the effect that eviction has on your mental health. Eviction has been linked to depression, overdose deaths, suicides. So when we add all that up, I think we have to conclude that evictions are not just a condition of poverty. They're also a cause of poverty. They're making things worse. And they're leaving a deep, jagged scar on the next generation. One question I think we need to ask ourselves when addressing this crisis is just like, how much are people getting evicted for? Sometimes you hear property owners say, what, what am I supposed to do when someone's six, seven, eight months behind in rent besides evict them? That's a fair question. So we've looked into this in the national data. And what we found is that, yeah, there are some people that are six, seven, eight months behind in rent, but there is a vast minority of people getting evicted in America. Most people get evicted for about two months' worth of rent. About a third of all evictions in America, as far as we can tell in our data, are for less than a month's worth of rent. Less than a month's worth of rent. That means one in 10 evictions in Massachusetts are for less than $600. One in five in North Carolina. One in 10 evictions in Virginia are for less than $335. What my students have to pay for textbooks every year is more than that, right? This varies widely between states. So our friends in, in Virginia, for example, most of those evictions are for less than a month's worth of rent. And it doesn't really track along red state, blue states, or usual regional variation. There's a lot of variation about, around the country about uh, people getting evicted for small sums of money. We can do something about these small number, unnecessary evictions right now. And this is why we're kind of considering the Eviction Crisis Act, right? And so um, the policy implications, I think, from this kind of basic idea that a lot of people are getting evicted for peanuts is that we can kind of track evictions from subsidized housing, which we haven't do. HUD does not uh, kind of pay attention to eviction rates in their PHAs. Evictions aren't used to evaluate the PHAs. We can look at expanding emergency assistance. We can look at eviction prevention programs like Homestart in Boston. Homestart lear lear learned it cost the Boston Public Housing Authority five times more money to evict a family than their intervention. Most of those families are still in Boston Public Housing three years after the intervention, which is just a one-time wraparound services, little legal aid, and paying some arrears. So the Eviction Crisis Act kind of takes its kind of calling from these basic insights. It does three main things. One, it improves data on evictions, right? If we don't have data on this problem, we're designing policy in the dark. Right? We won't know how big the problem is, what's working, what's not working. If you do an intervention, does an eviction rate fall? We need just a better data on this. And so the Eviction Crisis Act really kind of tries to build up the data infrastructure. It addresses preventable eviction by using uh, community courts, providing some legal assistance, and expanding emergency assistance to those uh, families that could really use it. I mean, just like, how many of you have been to eviction court? Anyone been to eviction court? All right, a few people. So it's not like court, like in Law and Order, right? Like in Charlotte, North Carolina, a commissioner has 100 eviction cases per hour. 
because I know most people aren't just going to show up, right? 70% of folks in Milwaukee don't show up. In Baltimore, it's 90%. In Detroit, it's 90%, okay? That's kind of the state of our eviction court. Community courts say, hey, why don't we try to actually make our courts, hear me out, functions as institutions of justice, hear me out. And so you go to eviction court and you say, and they say, Mr. Desmond, you're behind $500, is that true? And you say, yes. Now, in eviction court, normal eviction court, it's over, that's it. But in a community court, the judge says, why? And you say, I relapsed, I lost my job, something came up. Whatever the issue is, there's full-time social workers in the courtroom, they try to address that need, they try to get the property owner paid, and try to keep you in the home. That's a win-win-win. And so this is a bill that tries to invest in that idea. And it improves tenant screening reports. So a lot of tenants have this mark of eviction that follows them around even when they didn't get evicted, even when they got their case dismissed, even when they actually won in court. And so the Eviction Crisis Act says that's not right. You know, if you actually got brought to court with a landlord and you won your case, that mark shouldn't affect your credit and your housing opportunity going down the line. So please feel free to reach out to me and my team with any questions uh, after this. I look forward to entering into a dialogue. And I just think this is so, uh, such a neat opportunity for us to consider because without stable shelter, everything else falls apart. And here's an opportunity for us to act now on this morally urgent issue. So thank you so much for your time. We're really pleased to have with us uh, Senator Brown. Senator Brown is the um, senior United States Senator from Ohio. He is the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee. He's a longtime champion of uh, affordable housing and homeless programs, and more importantly, the people that the programs serve. And he is an original co-sponsor of the Eviction Crisis Act. So we're so pleased to have Senator Brown here. Senator Brown, please. Diane, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here for a few minutes, and I thank you, Diane, for the work that you do, which is, uh, Diane does a lot of, of educating the public and educating all of us in the Senate on the Banking Committee with op-eds and um, ask you to keep doing that on social media and writing everywhere you can. Uh, Peggy Bailey has been in um, testifying uh, on a bill that she's worked on with Shai and others in our office, uh, and Beth and others, um, on foster and kids that... that that age out in foster care, how important that is. Uh, Nan, thank you for your leadership role in, in helping to, to educate all of us and the, uh, the issues around homelessness. Thank you for that. And Sarah, thanks for your insight there in Seattle and elsewhere. And um, I, I um, often, and I welcome also my colleague, Chris Van Hollen, who is relatively new in the banking committee and is, is so solid on all these issues we care about. You know this committee is called Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. And frankly, in the last several years, housing has been written in very small letters or, or left out of the title in a sense. And um, that will change if elections change. That will absolutely change and where we're going on all this. And um, a lot of us will rely on Chris Van Hall and his expertise in housing and his advocacy, um, which are so important. I, um, I often, when talking to housing groups, uh, mention uh, two things I mentioned. One, as I mentioned, that um, my wife and I live in, in Cleveland, and we live in zip code 44105, which 10 years ago, uh, the first half of, well, 13 years ago now, the first half of 2007, we had more foreclosures in my zip code than any zip code in the country. And you still see what's left over from that. You see abandoned homes. You see homes where with toxic levels of lead. Uh, you see all the social 
social problems going that, that, that surround that. And it just makes me every day think about how we've neglected housing in this country in spite of the efforts of people like Peggy and Nan and, and Sarah and Diane and, and Matt. Um, we've neglected it far more than we should. But the other thing I mentioned is that all of us that work on housing should read two books. One is Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, um, which really does set the table to understand so well what Jim, what's left over from Jim Crow, what we've done as a nation or failed to do as a nation because of redlining and all the social ills that have been brought about because of segregation, because of discrimination. And Rothstein explains in that book better than anything I've ever read. The other, of course, is Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted. And um, I I'll always remember one of the things that Matthew said in that book is the rent eats first. That if you, um, if you have whatever number of dollars you have, you've got to pay the rent because if you don't and you're evicted or you're foreclosed upon, everything in your life is upside down. And you really almost never recover from that, particularly if you face issues of, of mental illness, you face issues of, of raising children and going to different school districts, all the things that happen from foreclosures and evictions and how important that is. And it's, it's shaped the way I've thought about housing, and I, I've encouraged my colleagues and others um, how important that is. I, I want to, let me say a couple other things, and then I know Chris, Chris will, will come forward. I think we're starting to see a growing awareness, even though banking, banking, housing, and urban affairs has not risen to the occasion on housing issues. I think we're seeing a growing awareness among colleagues in both parties of how important housing is, that everything sort of begins and ends in housing. And if people aren't housed adequately in a safe, affordable, clean surroundings, that so much else goes badly in their lives. And two bills we've worked on, um, both bills you're talking about today are bipartisan. I've worked with Senator Grassley last year in our bipartisan fostering stable housing opportunities, which Peggy talked about. Um, and we've worked, Chris, and Chris is working on one of those two bills also in terms of authorizing more dollars and making that happen. Um, I, I would just close by saying how important it is that you share your stories. If you're congressional staff, if you're advocates, um, that you encourage the people you work with or for um, to share their stories, to do roundtables about housing, to get people talking about this. Um, uh, Lincoln was once, um, his staff wanted to stay in the White House and win the war and free the slaves and preserve the Union. And Lincoln said, no, I got to go out and get my public opinion baths. And my guess is that those of you who are congressional staff, most of your bosses haven't been out enough, and I put myself in that category too, to talk to people in their communities about what's happened with inadequate or, or unavailable housing if they don't have access to it and how their lives how their lives are so much more difficult because of that. So keep doing that. Um, keep up the good work you're doing. Um, there will be a better day on the banking committee, I hope soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Senator Brown. And we're also so honored to have Senator Van Hollen here as well. As you heard, Senator Van Hollen is from Maryland. He also serves on the Senate Banking Committee and has also been a longtime champion of affordable housing and homeless programs, most recently as a United States Senator and before that as a U.S. Rep representative for Maryland's 8th District. We're so pleased to have your leadership, um, your original co-sponsorship of this tremendous new bill for 500,000 new opportunity vouchers, and we're so pleased to have you here today. So Thank please, you, Senator Van Hollen. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Diane. And I want to start by thanking you and the National Low Income Housing Coalition and all the other groups, including our Opportunity Starts at Home, uh, for your advocacy for affordable housing and addressing what we all know is a real crisis uh, when it comes to affordable housing and homelessness. And I also want to thank the folks you're going to hear from on the panel because all of them have helped inform uh, the legislation that uh, we've introduced. And uh, they include the Center for Budget uh, and Policy Priorities, Opportunity Insights, and Matthew Desmond uh, for all of their work. So I want to thank them for their input, all of you, in shaping that legislation. And, and, uh, and also just echo what Sherrod Brown just said with respect to the importance of your advocacy um, and making sure that you reach out to folks back in different states and make sure that they're uh, asking Congress uh, to act on this. And I, I do want to thank Sherrod Brown, uh, Senator Brown, for his leadership uh, on the Banking and Urban Affairs and Housing Committee and all the transit because, uh, as he said, Unfortunately, a lot of the focus is just on banking, not on housing, not on transit, not on some of the other important priorities in that committee. Uh, we do hope to change that uh, through the debate and through action on these bills, including two of which are bipartisan bills that we are looking forward to acting on sooner rather than later. I'm not going to go through the whole litany of facts that demonstrate we have a housing crisis. Um, you all know that. I do want to mention just a few salient ones. Uh, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities has looked at all the uh, housing, affordable housing challenges and the resources available and found that three out of four families that are eligible for federal rental assistance don't receive it because of funding limitations. Many of you may come from areas where there are very long waiting lists uh, for affordable housing. Uh, that is true in the state of Maryland. Uh, this happened in Baltimore just this past November when the Public Housing Authority said it would stop accepting applications, saying there were more than 14,000 applications on its wait list, and the average wait time was more than five years for people on the wait list. So five years is an awful long time to ask any family uh, to live in unstable conditions. And those are the people who are on the waiting list, not the thousands uh, who never get on it. And that is why we're focused on this uh, legislation, to help families. Uh, the focus of legislation that Senator Todd Young and I have introduced uh, is uh, families with kids, uh, because we know that moving to opportunity makes a huge difference in helping families transition out of poverty, uh, both, uh, both the generation of parents that are moving and uh, their children as well. And if you think about a five-year waiting list, um, that means five you know, school grades uh, that uh, are being missed, a lost opportunity uh, right there. We know that vouchers uh, have worked uh, in terms of not only providing more stable housing, but also, depending on how they're targeted, uh, providing uh, even more opportunity. Stability alone provides more opportunity than, than no um, stable housing. Uh, but if you combine that stability with opportunities to move uh, to areas of greater opportunity, that is the best uh, combination. And that's what the legislation that we've introduced does. Uh, it builds on uh, legislation that we passed 
a little while ago uh, called the Housing Choice Voucher Mobility Demonstration Act, long name, big mouthful. But in the end, uh, it was essentially a pilot program, and we were able to secure about $25 million, $28 million one year, $25 million the next year uh, for a pilot program. Uh, we've seen good success uh, in places like the Baltimore area. And we didn't even want to wait till all the results were in from the pilot program because the results, early, early reports were so good, it just made sense that we should uh, take the step toward the 500,000 uh, new vouchers that we call for uh, in the Family Stability and Opportunity Act uh, legislation. And this is going to increase the number of available vouchers by 20%. And Pregnant women and families with children under the age of six uh, will qualify for the new vouchers if they have a history of homelessness or housing instability, live in an area of concentrated poverty, or at risk of being pushed out um, of a high-opportunity area. Uh, importantly, uh, and I think this uh, has been the result of a lot of research um, that many of you have done, importantly, uh, in addition to the housing voucher, uh, it also provides for wraparound support uh, services uh, for those families and for those uh, children. They'll have access to counseling, uh, case management services, uh, and that's uh, modeled on the evidence that's come in uh, on other programs as to their uh, success. Uh, so it will help the uh, affordable housing crisis. It will give lower-income families uh, access to new opportunities, and especially provide support for families with children uh, who are at risk of being pushed out of their home. So uh, I, the fact that um, Senator Young and I were able to team up on this, I think is an important sign that there is bipartisan uh, support. Uh, it's, we need your help uh, in expanding the list of co-sponsors on this uh, legislation and other legislation. Uh, I want to say a quick word about uh, the evictions issue and Matthew, Matthew Desmond's uh, eviction lab uh, data uh, show that there are 13 evictions in the state of Maryland every day, uh, which uh, has a terrible toll uh, on families uh, and on kids who don't have a stable home. So I fully support the other legislation that you're uh, focused on today, introduced by Senator Bennett and Senator Portman. Um, Senator Hassan of New Hampshire and I have also introduced uh, something called the uh, Prevent Evictions Act. Uh, it has two components to it. Uh, it would create a grant program at HUD for localities to implement eviction mediation uh, programs. Uh, we've seen from the state of California and others that we could stop a lot of evictions uh, by a simple conversation between landlords and tenants on various occasions. Uh, that bill also directs HUD to study renters' uh, insurance uh, models so that if there's an unforeseen emergency, like a sudden job loss or medical emergency, people can meet the rent. I think we've all seen uh, the statistic that came out of the Federal Reserve that 40% of American families are just $400 uh, away uh, from essentially not being able to pay their rent or losing their home uh, and livelihood. So uh, it's great to be with all of you today. It's great to see a room full of people who are focused on the affordable housing crisis and, more importantly, focused on solutions uh, to the affordable housing crisis. And I just want to thank all of you uh, for being part of it. Let's. Th this is an area uh, that often does not get the attention 
that it should uh, when we talk about um, escaping poverty, providing opportunity, uh, and addressing for edu- and addressing educational opportunity uh, needs, uh, because this is all part and parcel of uh, ensuring that people have a secure place to call home. And if you don't have home base, if you don't have a secure place to call home, it's very difficult to succeed in all those other areas. So thank you for being here. Uh, look forward to the additional ideas that come out of this gathering. And most importantly, I look forward to you know, getting some of this passed uh, in the months uh, and years ahead, preferably sooner rather than later. Thank you all very much. Thank you. I'm going to invite our panelists to come on up. And while they're doing that, I'll introduce myself. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike Kaprowski. I'm the national director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Uh, so I'm going to invite panelists up. You already know uh, Matt and Sarah from the presentations, but we're also uh, bringing up Nan Roman and Peggy Bailey. Uh, Nan Roman is the president and CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. And Peggy Bailey is the Vice President for Housing Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Uh, and both the Center on Budget and the Alliance to End Homelessness were founding partners of the campaign, along with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. So uh, before we open it up to audience Q&A, I wanted to uh, allow Nan and Peggy uh, to briefly introduce themselves and talk about why they're here. So Nan, you want to take it away? Well, my name is Nan Roman, and I'm the President of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. The reason I'm here is basically because housing is, uh, or lack of housing, is what causes people to become homeless. That's what defines people as homeless. And housing is the solution to homelessness. Uh, Eviction is a predictor of homelessness among families and individuals, so we're very concerned about eviction. And, of course, also housing vouchers. Uh, There's a lot of evidence uh, that shows that housing vouchers end homelessness for people. So... Uh, these two things present a solution to us for homelessness, and that's the reason I'm here today. Hi, and uh, yes, I'm Peggy Bailey with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and I'm here today for exactly the same reasons that Nan is. Our mission is to help people at the, with the lowest incomes, and you can't do that if you don't address their housing. Um, the, the, uh, that population often becomes the people that other systems call the hardest to serve or the people that get left behind because oh, well, it's easier to serve this other population, and we want to stop that and call attention to the fact that, no, we need to stop and address one of the most basic needs that people have, and that's being able to pay for their housing. Great. Thank you. So now we're going to open it up to the audience for Q&A. I'll say we're expecting Senator Bennett around 310-ish, so we'll, we'll take a pause in that. But uh, let's open it up for questions for the panel about either of the, either of the bills. I saw the first hand in the back. Yes, sir. And if you could just introduce yourself, that'd be great. Hi, uh, my name is Jed. I work for Congressman Denny Heck. So this is an easy one. Do either of these bills uh, have a House companion introduced? Uh, Not yet. And so I think that uh, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of exciting work going on in the House, but they don't have a a companion bill just yet. I also want to introduce the room to uh, Mr. Jeffrey Williams. Uh, Jeffrey was, um, uh, can you wave? Uh, Jeffrey was uh, testifying with me in front of the House Financial Services Committee meeting. He is a, a tenant advocate from Wh- Richmond, Virginia. He's shared a heartfelt story of uh, his experiences with eviction. And so, Jeffrey, if it's okay with you, I, I would assume that uh, he, would you be okay with Mr. Williams taking questions and, and from the audience as well? Thank you, sir. Yeah, is that yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be up. great. Yeah, Come please run up. 
All right. Any other questions from the audience? Yes, ma'am, in the front. Can we get a... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Kim already had it back there. Um, I'm Alejandro with Congresswoman Holland's office. I just had a quick question that um, I'm not sure you have the data for because you were just saying there's not a lot of eviction data. Um, do you guys have any like base rates or change over time in eviction for the past like 10 years or so? And do you guys have like a national baseline that we can compare different cities to? Yes. Uh, the, the baseline is around uh, 2%. Uh, nationwide. Uh, you can go on the website and click and compare cities and there's even a ranking tool so you can see how your city matches up against uh, others. Um, formal court order evictions have been uh, incredibly uh, consistent over the last 10 years. So they haven't gone drastically up or drastically down. They've stayed at the same rate for about a decade. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Nathan Grant from Congressman Dan Kildee's office. Um, I was at your briefing, Sarah, um, a couple months back for the initial presentation of some of your research, and you had mentioned that there was going to be kind of like a qualitative follow-up to uh, the initial like quantitative data that you were uh, finding. I was wondering if there's any initial insights you guys are coming to as that process is like more expanding. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um one of the exciting things about this research is that it has been very mixed methods, and so it's not enough to just look at the, the numbers on where families are moving, but to make this really policy relevant, it's important to talk to families and find out what did this mean to them and, um, and which components of the policy changes um, uh, from families' perspectives um, really should be scaled. So as part of that, Stephanie DeLuca has been um, talking to families who participated in the CMTO effort. Um, at this point, she's talked to nearly 80% of those 420 families who came through um, the pilot. And some of the early results of that are in a working paper that are on Opportunity Insights' website, um, and there will be an update to that uh, next month, likely. But I think some of the things that we're really hearing from families, um, one, um, that having, I mean, housing search is such a complicated process, and it is made doubly hard um, if you haven't necessarily been in stable housing, if you have an eviction, if you've experienced homelessness prior to getting a voucher. So although families have been waiting and waiting while they've been um, on the wait list to receive a voucher, once they get the voucher in hand, the clock is effectively ticking, and having what families are saying is sort of having somebody have their back, somebody who can help them to navigate that process, to really think about which neighborhoods um, are they interested in and what is it about those neighborhoods that that has really been impactful. That's really um, helped them to feel like they are more of a, a part of the process and to have more agency in that process. And it's also created for more efficient outcomes, right? So that families have, especially low-income families, they have a lot of competing priorities. And housing search can be um, a very expensive process in terms of both time and dollars. And having um, a navigator to help them to navigate that process um, just creates real efficiencies to someone to have someone sort of be that in between to provide unit referrals to streamline the housing search process. Um, so there's more on those mechanisms in the working paper, um, and I hope more will be forthcoming um, after we have sort of the full download from those interviews. Okay, next question. Yeah, Khalil. Um, good afternoon. I'm Khalil Shahid with the Natural Resources Defense Council, um, and my question was for the uh, eviction date. I was wondering um, if the data included uh, any subset uh, to evictions caused uh, through through uh, disaster, uh, weather disaster, hurricane, 
a, or, or tornado because 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 we've seen Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane uh, I think it was Michael, um, and others and from New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. We've seen uh, a huge uptick uh, in evictions in, in a post disaster setting. Uh, no, it doesn't. Wouldn't it be great to have a federal eviction database that has that information and that you can you can ask questions that are relevant to what you do. You could ask questions relevant to the Fair Housing Act. You can ask, say, are African Americans evicted at much higher rates than, than white renters? Is there a disproportionate impact there? So I think that there are a lot of holes in the in the data and there's just a real opportunity to fill them. Great. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. If you could speak into the microphone, thank you. My question is similar to the one just asked. I'm wondering if you're finding any secondary reasons for evictions that don't invite, involve money. For example, uh, we had a situation where a single adult, instead of going through the door, he was climbing through the window and his behavior began to escalate. It was, and I know that the person wanted him evicted and um, the referring agency was not willing or able to provide any services to help to stabilize the situation. So I'm wondering if there are secondary reasons that do not involve money, that create homelessness. Uh, yes, uh, but the vast majority of evictions, from what we can tell, are for non-payment of rent. People are already living at the bottom of the market in places they can't afford. And that kind of situation is what's driving most evictions. However, there are other circumstances as well. Domestic violence, for example, is, uh, is something that we've uh, started looking into um, as well. And specifically in cities that have uh, these nuisance ordinances that punish landlords for excessive 911 calls seem to be disproportionately affecting uh, domestic violence survivors and getting them evicted. So yes, there are other competing factors, but the, the big story is, is the housing crisis. Okay, in the back. Hey, um, hi. my question's for Mr. Williams, since he got volunteered, voluntold to come up um, on the panel. I'm Beth, I'm with um, Senator Brown's Banking Committee staff, and I'm wondering, in your experience, um, was there, if when you realized you're about to go through an eviction, I understand that was your, your experience, um, was there any organization that you reached out to for assistance? Did you know where in the community you might go for assistance? Kind of wondering about your experience and contact with um, just knowing who might be available to help in the community. To, to answer your question, uh, I, uh, well, first of first, my name is Jeffrey Williams um, by way of Richmond, Virginia. Um, um, a husband, a father, uh, of three, um, was evicted since 2017, and kind of just caught up in the whole eviction process. Um, but to answer your question, on when prior to our eviction date coming up, um, we tried to reach out on the state level, city level, for funds and resources via churches, social service, all of those organizations. And what we were finding out is that most, if not all, have come back to us and said we have neither maximized our funding or we just can't simply help. Um, a lot of the churches uh, have resources, but they don't have resources. Um, then you go to, on the city level, you go to the social service uh, and they're maximized on what they can do. So at that point, we were stuck in a situation um, on the day of the eviction 
that we literally, our whole lives, as I said earlier today, uh, our whole lives was turned up in less than an hour. Uh, family of three, um, three kids, chronic asthmatic, and I had less than an hour to get what I can get and be put out on the street. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, we tried to reach all assets, but uh, no one could help. I want to add uh, one thing to that, uh, talking about you know the the emergency of of these sorts of situations, um, that that the American people broadly understand the need for this. And I just wanted to mention some of the public polling data that we have done uh, on the concepts of emergency assistance and the opportunity uh, vouchers. Um, and what we're finding is that there's strong bipartisan support for these types of concepts. The American people intuitively understand uh, that crises happen um, and that people shouldn't end up homeless because of it. Um, so I, I wanted to just mention a, a few brief ones related to uh, the Evictions Crisis Act. So we commissioned a national public opinion poll earlier this spring uh, across the country, representative sample across the country, um, and we asked people whether, you know, strongly favor, somewhat favor, somewhat oppose, strongly oppose. Uh, whether they were in favor of providing, and this is the exact wording, uh, providing emergency crisis assistance for households with the lowest incomes to help cover rent if they experience an unexpected economic hardship like losing a job or a medical emergency not covered by insurance. 88% of the public uh, favors that. And when you disaggregate it based on party, uh, it's still very strong. So 96% of Democrats support it, 83% uh, of independents, 82% of Republicans, and 81% of conservative Republicans. Uh, there's, there's several that I could go through. The numbers are very similar uh, for the Opportunity Vouchers Act as well. But I just want to be clear that, that these types of, of experiences that uh, Jeffrey is talking about, the American people intuitively understand that this happens and that we can't let uh, the spiral of housing instability and eviction and homelessness happen uh, because of it. Hi, my name is Arielle Higuchi. I'm with Congressman Bear's office. Um, first, I want to thank you all for taking the time to speak with us today. I had a question um, as it relates to the program that, uh, Sarah, that you mentioned. Um, so first, I was really impressed to hear the results of the program, uh, but I couldn't help but um, think that so Seattle is in Washington State, and Washington State um, source of income discrimination is illegal. So when we're talking about the um, Opportunities uh, Vouchers Act, I was wondering if the panelists may, able, may be able to speak about um, any insights that you have as to the extent to which source of income discrimination across uh, the U.S. might hinder the uh, positive impact of these increased voucher programs. Thank you. So, Sure. So that's um, a critical issue, not just source of income, but racism and discrimination broadly when it comes to housing, people being able to access housing, and particularly people of color, but also people with disabilities and all the populations that are protected by the Fair Housing Act. Uh, so it not so source of income discrimination is one piece of the puzzle. And so for folks that don't know what that is, uh, often... Too often, people uh, who have a housing voucher are discriminated against simply because they have a housing voucher. It is not, uh, uh, it is not illegal for, some, for a landlord, um, a, a federal, it's not federally illegal for a landlord to say, I'm not going to rent to you because you're a voucher holder. States, several states and localities have passed ordinances that uh, do make it illegal locally um, and, and landlords would face um, challenges if that was the reason that they were uh, 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 not providing some, not allowing someone, not, not renting to someone. 
So anything that that uh, that that promotes discrimination and allows for, as um, as Matthew mentioned, the the pieces of the puzzle that are put together in the col- color of law to talk about uh, to not reverse discriminatory housing practices prohibits mobility. And we have we have to do more to highlight that. So protecting the Fair Housing Act, protecting uh, calling on localities and housing agencies to uh, proactively address fair housing issues in their communities, making sure that people can bring forward uh, fair housing cases so that we can fight against Ill- um, illegal practices at the local level are all things that um, that uh, that would prohibit that prohibit people from being able to live where they want. We also have to do more generally to help our own biases uh, and fight our neighbors' biases when it comes to having people. Uh, with low incomes, maybe they're voucher holders, maybe they're a different color than us, live next door to us and fight nimbyism that happens uh, in communities where we sometimes that are sometimes um, masked as oh well, and this happened in D.C. Right? Oh well, if we have those people live next to us, they won't be able to afford the Whole Foods, and so maybe they should live somewhere where there's cheaper groceries. Right? Those types of conversations need to be called out for what they are. They're discriminatory. They're um, letting us have, uh, letting us lean into our implicit bias and our racism, and all of those things prevent people from living where they choose. Thanks. Okay, so we're going to take a pause in the Q&A, and I want to invite Senator Bennett on up to say a few words. <laughs> uh, so uh, Michael Bennett is the senior uh, U.S. senator from Colorado uh, since 2009. Among many other uh, positions, he was the superintendent of Denver Public Schools, which certainly shaped his views of how the eviction crisis impacts student achievement. He's seen it firsthand, uh, and he's an original co-sponsor of the Eviction Crisis Act. So Senator Bennett, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you all. I'm sorry to interrupt, and I was at the Intelligence Committee. I'm going to have to run back over there. There's more than one thing going on at the same time, but I wanted to come and just say thank you uh, to the panel and to all of you for your interest in this. Um, I at first sort of encountered this in my own uh, life when I was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools, and I realized uh, a profound effect housing was having on the quality of the education that kids were getting in our school district. We were able to uh, make really big changes in the delivery of um, our academic uh, uh, program, and I think we improved it substantially. But um, when I when I t- took a look at why families were moving, um, there were some families in the district that were moving um, to better schools from poorer schools. There were others that were moving from uh, better schools to poorer schools, which is something you don't want to see. And very often that was because of housing situations. And I was never able to figure out how to get underneath that when I was the superintendent, and then I ended up here. And then I read uh, Matthew Desmond's book, which, by the way, I'm still recommending. So uh, uh, all I don't know who listened to me necessarily on the radio in Manchester, New Hampshire, but the very last question on the public radio station there this weekend was, what books do you recommend? And of course, it was yours once again. So I'm still peddling it. Because for me, it just was such an eye-opener of what I had seen families you know, on the receiving end in Denver 
but now a chance to understand how federal policy was intersecting with a marketplace, and in that case, in the city of Milwaukee, but across the country, with some intended consequences that were not very helpful and a lot of unintended consequences that were not very helpful. And so that began, uh, we got together and we met, and that became the beginning of the work that we put together in the Evictions Crisis Act, what has become the Evictions Crisis Act, which is now a bipartisan piece of legislation in the Senate. And I really think there's the real chance that we're going to be able to get this bill passed and other um, uh, similar pieces of legislation. And for the first time, uh, because of Matt's breathtaking work, um, I will commit the federal government to actually studying the evictions crisis, understanding the evictions crisis, understanding the nature of evictions in the country, which we really don't today, which is, I think, one of the important pieces of the research that came out of uh, his book, figuring out how to prevent it and where we can and to mitigate the effects where we can. One of the things that I took away from Matt's book that was clear, I mean, it was just as clear as day when I was superintendent, but I didn't see it as explicitly as uh, when I read the book, is it, it's clear what the profound economic effects are on, in, on families who face eviction. But when one eviction adds up to, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, as our preferred remedy for dealing with people that have fallen very marginally behind on their rent. It creates not just an economic crisis for those families, but it's a potential economic crisis for our communities because we then have to spend money doing lots of things, including educating kids who are no longer at the same school they once were because we've used that remedy. My hope is what will come out of this is a national commitment to uh, f finding remedies that are least destructive to family life and least destructive, particularly in cases where the increment of money is so small that it is, you know, it is pe penny-wise and pound-foolish for all of us to engage in this sort of policy. So uh, all of which is to say thank you to all of you for what you've done to get us to this point. Now, look, we're living at a time when Washington is very dysfunctional and when it's really hard to get anything across the finish line, especially when it's something that has to do with people living in poverty, who are folks in general who don't have uh, advocates here in the nation's capital, and you are here in, to be their advocates. And I feel like I and Sherrod and others that have been working on this are trying to be their advocates too, and I hope we can roll up our sleeves together and figure out a creative way to work together to get this done. And I can tell you my office, Charlie Anderson's back there, who's worked so hard on this bill from the very beginning, we will do absolutely everything we can do to make sure we get it across the finish line. So thank you for having me today, and thanks for everything you're doing. Thank you, Senator Bennett. Appreciate your remarks. Great seeing you. Okay. All right. Um, I wanted to, uh, Nan, I wanted to target a, a question to you, and it's uh, what, what Senator Bennett was talking about is, is a good segue into it. Um, the particular piece of the Eviction Crisis Act um, that uh, we have really strongly ad advocated for was uh, the Emergency Assistance uh, Fund. And the, the logic is with the Emergency Assistance Fund is that uh, a small amount of money uh, can prevent, uh, prevent eviction. Um, and Matt talked about uh, the, the small uh, money evictions that are, that are occurring. And the logic is that there's a, with a small amount of money, you can avert these things. And I'm curious if you could talk about that and, and maybe talk about some communities that have tried it. Sure. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, uh, it's definitely true that uh, uh, 
a small amount of money can often help. On the, a couple of years ago, there was a bipartisan Policy Center Housing Commission uh, that made some recommendations uh, around affordable housing. And one of the things, and I was on that, uh, on that commission, and one of the things that we found was that a lot of people really could afford their rents, uh, but something would happen. You know, their child would get sick, so they couldn't go to work for a few days. I, I met a woman not too long ago who was, whose daughter was in prison. She was living in public housing, taking care of the grandchildren. One of the grandchildren had a birthday. She spent $60 uh, more than she really had uh, to make the birthday party for the little boy. Then she didn't have enough to pay the rent. She didn't pay the rent. And, uh, and she got evicted from public housing because of that. I mean, it's very, very small uh, amounts of money, but we don't really have flexibility in most federal programs. We don't have a tool, a housing tool, that uh, gives you $300 so that you can uh, pay to get your car fixed or make up the difference uh, in your rent. Uh, and and uh, so I think... Um, uh, this flexible pool was suggested by the Bipartisan Policy Commission then as a way to help uh, evic uh, help people avoid evictions. Not everybody who gets evicted becomes homeless. That's for sure. Mo most people don't uh, become homeless who are evicted. But for many people, being evicted does start this sort of downward spiral uh, that various people have described here. As they move to somewhere else, it gets harder and harder to get another place to live because you have the eviction uh, on your record. And uh, just in terms of homelessness, doing something uh, to, to reduce evictions, prevent evictions, definitely is going to have a big impact on uh, reducing homelessness. Not just for families either, I should mention, because we've talked a lot about families, but individuals, which is sort of the bigger homeless problem at the moment, uh, also are, are affected by uh, these evictions. Um, there are a lot of jurisdictions that... Um, that invest in prevention. Probably the biggest investment in prevention is in New York City uh, on, around home. This is homelessness prevention, doing eviction assistance in order to prevent people from becoming homeless. Uh, New York City has a right to shelter, and so once people become homeless, they enter shelter. They're, uh, the city's required to provide shelter for families, essentially required to provide apartments. It costs them a lot of money to do that, so they're very incentivized to prevent people from entering the homeless system. And they have a system called Home Base, uh, which, has, uh, which provides uh, eviction assistance to a lot of families who are at risk. They have a lot of missed hits in the Home Base program, and by that I mean uh, they, provide event, prevent, they provide eviction assistance and they do prevent the eviction, but it's unlikely that the family would have become homeless um, even if they hadn't provided the assistance. But in this case, in many cases, you can have a lot of missed hits. You don't actually have to worry too much about whether the household would become homeless because you're still saving money in the end because letting somebody can become homeless costs often tens of thousands of dollars. Certainly in New York it does. Uh, so the small amount that's spent on eviction assistance, you could help a lot of people, uh, even if you only prevented uh, a small number of um, uh, cases of homelessness and still come out ahead. I just got some money on the DC Emergency Rental Assistance Program and the Homeless Prevention Program, both of which do eviction assistance. Uh, from FY15 to 20, the DC Homelessness Prevention Program uh, served 20 or 7,100 unique families and avoided shelter for 90% of them. 6,400 families were uh, avoided shelter because of that. 
and the, um, that was the homelessness prevention program, the emergency rental assistance program in the last year also helped 2,200 uh, residents avoid homelessness. The tip cost of a typical homeless episode for a family is between $16,000 and $60,000 according to the HUD Family Options Study and the cost of eviction prevention much less. So definitely would help with homelessness. Thank you, Nan. Okay, any other questions? We have a few minutes left. I wanna make sure that we get to folks that haven't had a chance to ask a question. I see one hand in the back. How is the funding, oh, hi, I'm Linda from uh, Representative Holland's office also. Um, how's the funding for vouchers changed over the last 10 years and what can we expect going forward? So the question about voucher funding is complicated, right? Um, it's important to remember that even though we have seen increases in the funding itself, voucher funding has to increase every year in order to keep up with the payment of rents simply for the current population. So while voucher funding has increased steadily, that, that increase has primarily been to just keep the same number of people housed. So you'll see, um, so if you, so really it's been um, over, over, to, over the, over re the last decade, we've basically been treading water in the voucher program. Um, some of the increases, though, have been in targeted places. For example, the um, Veterans Affairs uh, Supportive Housing Program, that has led to some increases in housing assistance for populations. There's been some increases in the, in, for, for in rental assistance for people with disabilities. Some of the, um, these special populations that are targeted, particularly around homelessness, have caused a, a little bit of uh, uh, us to make a little bit of strides, but it hasn't been enough to impact that number that 25% that the voucher program, the rental assistance programs only serve 25% of people who are eligible. We haven't seen increases uh, that have has done anything uh, along those lines. What we've done is basically treaded water and addressed some really specific needs among certain populations. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yeah, so they're in the family uh, opportunities, uh, family stability and opportunity act. There are there's addition there's additional money for vouchers themselves. So over five years, we would be able to provide vouchers for 500,000 more families and provide the services and supports around those families to help them access services in their community uh, and do things like landlord outreach and the other pieces of the puzzle that Sarah mentioned in her. So it would add, so if, if passed and appropriated, it would add housing vouchers and help, you know, it's not going to close the gap completely, but it'll help um, make progress toward closing that gap. Oh, so that closure, 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So that closure is because of a lack of funding. If the district had more funding available, they would be able to open those. It's not the, the district not being able to receive dollars. I'm sure the district would want to be able to get additional dollars. Those voucher, the voucher program is closed not beca because they haven't gotten additional dollars to be able to serve more people. So they've, um, so they've taken the tack of closing the, um, the waiting list because, people, because there's not enough dollars. But if they got more dollars, it would they would be able to open it. Thanks, Peggy. Uh, we talk a lot in the campaign about how you know state and local actions matter a lot. Uh, states and localities need to expand their own resources and implement better policies. Um, but states and localities also can't do this alone. And this is why more robust federal action is absolutely necessary and why these pieces of legislation are absolutely necessary. We have to have uh, a more robust response from the federal government to tackle uh, this housing crisis. I think we have time for one last question, if there is one out there, and then I'll, I'll quickly wrap up. Um, but if not, I can just wrap up. Do we answer all your questions? <laughs> all right. Okay. Yes, Nicole. So I have a question. I know you mentioned that there's no federal database that gives you the demographics that you're looking for. But um, my name is Nicole. I'm from the American Legion. And I'm just curious as to how this affects veterans and the federal programs that are already established, i.e. HUD-VASH and the eviction rate. Has anybody looked at that? Uh, as Nan knows better than I do, uh, the progress we've made toward addressing veteran homelessness has been pr pretty impressive over the last 10 years. And so um, we can't tell in eviction records if someone's a veteran or not. We can't tell if they have kids or not. We can't tell if they have a disability or not. There are these basic policy-relevant questions um, that we're just designing policy in the dark. You know, and so if we don't have the database like this, we're going to continue to design major housing legislation without a real sense of what the, uh, the actual problem looks like. And what, what I can say that we've looked at, though, is the income issues around with veterans and the and, and the, um, the, the and veterans who could use assistance uh, if they uh, if if they had if they had access to it, and I can get you the information that we have on that. But so that's so we don't know the eviction side, but we do know that we can't we have clues into the affordability side. And you know, thinking about Vash, what Vash has taught us is that with rental assistance, you can solve homelessness, you can you can stabilize someone's life. But there are so many more veterans who need rental assistance, but don't need a VASH level, don't need support, the supportive housing part of the VASH program. And that's something I think that we need to look at more, is how could we provide rental assistance to veterans who need to be, need to be stabilized in their home, but don't need a VASH level of care. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so that uh, that concludes our time here. Um, I wanted to urge you, if you uh, are interested in more information, there's uh, uh, pamphlets out on the table, there's fact sheets uh, and other documents. If you haven't picked those up, please do. Uh, you can also go to the campaign's website, opportunityhome.org. Um, and first, I want to thank all the panelists uh, for coming today. Let's give them a round of applause. I know... 
Matt had the sprint from the house hearing over here, and Sarah flew in from Boston. And Jeffrey, thank you for, for coming and adding your perspective in an impromptu uh, way. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to remind everybody about the bills real quick, uh, the numbers behind them, Eviction Crisis Act, Senate Bill 3030, and the Opportunity Vouchers Act, Senate Bill uh, 3083. Uh, you can see the co-sponsors up on the screen. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, we all stand ready. Uh, to work with you uh, to advance these solutions into law. Thank you all very much for coming. Mm -hmm.